0: of Jesus Christ, the good news about the person and the work of Christ, is something that not only saves us, it continually saves us and sanctifies us, and it infiltrates our life. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 to 15, but beginning in verse 8, as a review. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self control. Paul is deeply concerned that the church is healthy. That the church in Ephesus would live out the living Christ with all esteem and godliness in everything that they say and do. In chapter two, Paul is giving instructions for proper worship, conduct within the church, as well as the urging of both men and women to exercise their roles rightly and in godliness. We realize that stepping into this passage, as I said last week, and if you are new, joining us maybe for the first time this morning, I encourage you, go online to our website, hpstilensport.com. Go listen to last week's sermon. Catch up with where we are at. But as we come into this passage, we recognize this is a very controversial passage. Because it provokes so many questions on first pass, it seems to create a lot of confusion and questions. Especially among our sisters here. You, my sisters, wondering, what does this actually mean I should be doing? What does a learner look like? Does it mean I can never speak? Can a woman be a pastor, a deacon? Can she exert leadership and authority of any kind? And what does it mean that my salvation comes by having kids? A lot of questions. And we brothers, let's be honest, at times just conveniently sidestep this passage because it does excite a lot of questions. And frankly, it exposes baggage that we bring into this discussion. You need to understand that as unbiased as we try to be in our individuality, we are nonetheless products of our immediate and our greater historical moments. The way we think, the way that we process, are products of our greater cultural environment and are also, in many ways, products of our experiences. And so we come into this conversation not as blank slates, blank sheets of paper, but rather we come in with baggage, preconceptions, a priori knowledge or previous knowledge understanding coming into this concept. That's why we're spending five weeks on this passage. We're going to spend two to three hours of total lecture time, exposition time, over the course of these five weeks, looking at this passage so that we can understand it from different angles, that we can pass over it several times, because my goal is not just simply to say, here's what we stand, and you understand only our position, but rather I hope that you will understand what we believe, why we believe it. And that also you yourself are empowered to go out there and explain this text yourself. So that we truly understand and grasp how to both to apply and comprehend it. Now, five weeks. Last week we looked at let a woman learn and exercise her role rightly. Today, we're going to be talking about a needed confession concerning male roles exercised unjustly. Next week... A needed understanding concerning female roles exercised in dissatisfaction. Week number four, the great debate. What can a woman do in the church? Lastly, sisters, persevere for your complete salvation is coming, and that'll be the last week. So this week, brothers, I am primarily addressing you. I'm addressing you, my brothers, and the sin nature That you bring into this discussion and conversation. And then next week, I'm going to be addressing you, my sisters, and the sin nature that you bring into the discussion. We have to be aware of these things. As if we are not, we are doomed to treat this text and misunderstand it. Before we get into the actual topic of this morning, I, I do want to review I want to review the flow and the argument of the text because I'd like to exercise the teacher's right of repetition for the sake of comprehension. My goal is not to every single Sunday morning that you're hearing something so brand new that you're just excited for that newness. No, sometimes we are going to Retread the path multiple times because the goal is not just simply to excite your imagination. I hope at times that that occurs, but it is also for comprehension. And just like we learn in school that we have to walk the same path multiple times and each time we do, we actually notice a tree that wasn't there before or the view that we bypassed on our first walk. So let's take in again what the Lord has for us this morning. The 1st Timothy written to Timothy, the person, the individual, a real historical figure, to encourage him how to lead the church in Ephesus, a major port city of economic trade and bustling social activity. It was a place of great pagan worship. It was also a place where the church gained an early foothold and there was a thriving community of believers in the city. An important backdrop, though, as we read 1 Timothy. The 1 Timothy was written against the backdrop of a transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. From a Judaistic or Jewish understanding of thinking and worshiping and an understanding of roles, combined with traditions that have been piled up on top over the years, And then transitioning them to an understanding of what it means to worship and a new identity in Christ. It's very important to realize this backdrop because it's not only in Timothy, it really is across the entirety of the New Testament. I believe I can prove this quite convincingly, just in a couple of brief points and then those of you who would like further extrapolation, I'd be glad to talk with you or at least point you into some resources. But if we look across the New Testament just make note of how many New Testament books directly address the Jews. The book of Romans, there's entire swaths talking about Jews, you understood this and you have these questions, but this is what it means in Christ. The book of Hebrews that we just spent two plus years in is Old Testament analogy over Old Testament analogy, provoking questions that the Jew needed answered. How do we go from a priesthood and a sacrifice to Christ? And as these transitions of understandings are coming, and as the culture is changing, there were battles, and we see that evidenced in the book of Acts. Do we not see that even among the disciples themselves, when Peter and the sheet in his vision comes down from heaven, and God says, "Eat all of these unclean foods," and Peter says, "No, I can't eat that," and the sheet comes down again and says, "Eat." And Peter says, no. And then again, eat. And what is the vision communicating? The gospel is not just for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles and what God has made clean, you shall not call unclean, you Jew, who has come to completion in Christ. But it wasn't an easy transition because even the church had to wrestle and wrangle. And We see that in the book of Acts again in the Jerusalem Council as they wrestled with questions like, What does it mean for a Gentile to come into the community of faith? Should they be circumcised? Must they keep the Old Testament law? Even Paul, recognizing these dynamics, had Timothy circumcised. And in 2 Timothy, we see him showing his mother and his grandmother to prove Timothy's Jewish lineage. There is this significant Jewish backdrop behind the New Testament. And it would be foolish of us to ignore that in understanding interpretation. Now, if you're still not convinced, let me use some internal evidence within 1 Timothy itself. If you look back at chapter 1, what is the issue going on? The issue going on in chapter 1 is that you have some leaders desiring to be teachers of the law, Old Testament Jewish understanding, wrangling over genealogies, which is again a very Judaistic debate. And they're wrestling with the application of the law. Is the law good? Is the law to be used? How should it be used? So even in the book of 1 Timothy, we see a wrestling even here with these concepts. Now, in light of that, in understanding chapter 1, we move into chapter 2. And Paul says, I want prayers for all peoples. It's not a comment on the extent of the atonement. Keeping within the contextual argument of this passage, he is saying what we see in the book of Acts and even what Paul confronted Peter with with Galatians, that the gospel is no longer just for the Jews in an Old Testament understanding, but the gospel is for kings, for paupers. It is for people from every tribe, nation, language group, nation, people group, all kinds of peoples. And that his ransom was not just for the Jews but for all kinds of people to include the Gentiles. To combat the gospel prejudice that had crept into the church because those who were Jews coming into the faith were reluctant to invite Gentiles into the community of faith. In chapter 2 the argument continues. Both men and women don't disrupt the worship. Men with your anger, your lack of holiness, your quarreling. Women, with your pride and your vanity. Don't disrupt the worship. And to be clear, women, Paul writes to Timothy, you should be learners. You should be disciples, par excellence. Women, learn. Or in verse 11, as it's literally translated, let a woman learn, but it's in the imperatival sense. This is something, Timothy, don't fall into the Jewish characteristics and mindsets where women are second class citizens of grace. Back in the synagogue, where the men went to synagogue and they learned the Torah, but the women did not. Timothy let women learn they should be disciples on par and equal with men as co-inheritors of grace for there is neither Jew nor Greek neither slave nor free there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus amen Now don't misapply that verse and then say because there's no male nor female within the context of salvation that that verse does away with roles in the family or roles within the context of the church that is using a verse out of its argument to support an argument, another argument that that verse never intended to argue. Women, you are to be learners, disciples of Christ, but learn with a humble heart, quietly. Quietly meaning not in silence, textually, it's a big stretch to make that word mean that but in submissiveness to the word of God. Exercise your role rightly, sisters. Your role has not to do with your capacity, your talent, or your ability. For many of you are better teachers and orators than I am. But rather because there is a created order. God, man, woman, nature. And in the fall, that was all upended, where a snake Nature deceived the woman who then swayed her husband, who then, all of them together, rejected God. Don't play in and reverse the fall. Don't reverse the order of creation and repeat the sin of the fall, excuse me. Therefore, exert that role and authority, but not usurping the authority of the qualified godly overseer And persevere, adorn yourself with good works. Your complete salvation is coming. Now, if we wonder what is that overseer supposed to be and what is that eldership supposed to look like, we then move into chapter three and he describes and says, this is what godly leadership should look like. Now, I gave a whole list of questions that this passage provokes. And again, over these weeks, we're gonna try and address different ones of them. But before we go any further, we must address some of the noise that has created hurt and confusion around this text. And so, so the big idea for this morning is directed at you, brothers. Brothers, there is needed confession concerning male roles exercised unjustly. There is needed confession concerning male roles exercised unjustly. And men, brothers, friends... We have to acknowledge that in the history of the church and in greater evangelicalism, we have often hurt and diminished our sisters in Christ. We have often, throughout the history of the church, maligned them as second class recipients of grace and repeated the situation that Paul is warning Timothy against. And instead of viewing them as partners in ministry, we have treated them as potential objects of sexual temptation only instead of co-inheritors of grace. We have at times silenced them by our patriarchy. And other times we have caused confusion because of our weak leadership, placing them beyond their God-given role within the context of the church. We have not always done a good job of celebrating the gifts of intellect, leadership, and instructional ability that our sisters do have. And sometimes we have allowed unregenerate religious men, follow that train of thought? Sometimes we've allowed unregenerate religious men have vocality in the context of the church to control conversation way out of the bounds of what is godly. I've been a pastor long enough here at Heritage to see unregenerate religious men Who are angry and bitter and cantankerous. When I say confession, by the way, I know that in our culture we sometimes just, especially brothers, we, we associate confession and and maybe humility with weakness. I am not apologizing for virtue signaling either. Where in our culture, it's a race to the bottom to be the lowest of the low in some sort of feigned humility. Maybe be clear, I'm not apologizing for being a man. Rather, for how at times my internal sin nature has taken advantage of my manhood and hurt my sisters in Christ. Brothers, we need to realize that our sin nature, along with poor understanding of this passage, has yielded great confusion. And if we are ignorant of this, I think we do not create an atmosphere in which there can be true healing and generous understanding of our roles in Christ. Now to my sisters, you may ask, and this is a question I prompted last week, how can you as a man speak justly on this topic? And that's a fair question. Matter of fact, I'm of the opinion that any question is a good question. We should address and think through them. And I wanna state up front, I am not pretending that I acknowledge and do not fully understand the female situation. Frankly, frankly, I am so ignorant in my being, I would say I don't understand the female situation at all. I'm not an expert on the female mind. Hence, because of those inherent limitations, we walk closely with the spoken word of God Because God understands you, my sisters, and parses you better than you can yourself. And so I don't claim to understand you, but I believe we can go to the word that does. How can I speak on this as a man? Because I I am exercising my role as elder overseer to speak to the family of God, comprising both men and women, And practically, I would actually urge your thinking in this way that practically, uh, a man who genuinely desires and advocates for his sisters in Christ to exercise their roles in a godly way is one of your best advocates. Just like a woman who believes in godly male headship is one of our best advocates, Instead of standing for our own positions, when we stand for one another, this is actually one of the greatest offenses, is it not? So in confession and acknowledgement and admission of understanding that how these things have played into this conversation, let's look at this passage, chapter one and chapter two, across a little bit of a grander scope. And see, brothers, how we might be challenged. Now, my methodology, instead of just pulling ways that I think men have been unjust, my methodology is bounded by this text. In other words, we're gonna look at the confessions we draw out of here, seven of them to be specific, and they come out of first and second, sorry, first Timothy chapter one and two. That's gonna be our bounding. So I'm not creating anything, I'm looking into the text and seeing what Paul has already warned. Uh, two males. Leadership to overseers and to men in general about how if we are not careful, the exercise of our roles unjustly can shut down an environment and a culture by which both men and women can be learners of Christ. As a backdrop to this, Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8. And I've I've asked the guys just to leave this verse uh, on the screen for the duration because it sums up so much of what we're talking about. Micah 6.8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Confession number one, brothers. Number one, we must confess and acknowledge our intrinsic fallenness. We must confess and acknowledge our intrinsic fallenness. My basis for this point comes out of the end of 1 Timothy chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul says, let's talk about creation. Let's talk about how roles were disordered. Therefore, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Beginning in verse 7. Go all the way to the front of your Bible, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Let's look at the fall. First together and then specifically the result of the fall with regards to the man. Verse 7. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So their eyes are opened. There is shame. There's exposure. And then attempts of their own to make it right. By covering themselves. Inadequately but trying to cover up their sin with their own abilities. And then in verse nine, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and listen to this, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Brothers bound up within us in our fallen sinfulness we are fearful little men. And we try to hide that fear with bravado or success or achievements. But within us, we're afraid. We're afraid of what people think. We're afraid of not measuring up. We're afraid of the lack of success. There's fear bound up in ourselves and we try, we try to hide it just like Adam tried to hide himself. And then when we can't hide, guess what we do? Verse 12, we find someone to blame. The man said, the woman you gave to me with me gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Notice he's not first blaming the woman. He said, the woman you gave to me, she. It's your fault, God, and her fault, not me. These are characteristics of the fall, brothers. We are afraid. We try to hide our fear. And then we blame others for our known deficiencies. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 to 19. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Because you listened to the voice of your wife, brothers, we agreed with the reversal of creation. We agreed and affirmed the disordering of roles. We consented to To sin. And in Adam, we agreed with the abdication of the leadership that we should have taken and agreed to give it to the woman, so we have plausible deniability, and we could blame her for when she failed all at the beginning, it should have been us. Cursed is the ground because of you. Your actions and your sin affects your surroundings, your environment. Literally, the environment. But also, brothers, our sin has great capacity to affect this environment. We labor, but pain is the result. Hard work is no longer a joy. There is dissatisfaction and bitterness against what was meant for our joy, work and responsibility and taking that role of leadership. But now we hate it internally unless there's some sort of identifiable benefit for us personally. We don't want to work. We don't want the leadership. We don't want the responsibility. It's too much. I would rather someone else do it. It's again, what is that? The abdication of a role. I would rather my wife run the family. Brothers, let let me pause here in case I'm dancing on your toes. This passage first smacked me before it smacked you as I studied it this week. I'm right there with you. Death, finally, is now a part of our destiny. So despair, shame, hiding, this is bound up in who we are. But here's the good news. Now, here's the, here's the blessed news. This is why we preach Christ. Because in Christ, if you are in Christ, the fall is not fully reversed, but it begins to be reversed. Okay? In Christ, the first new Adam, as Paul says in the book of Romans, the fall begins to be reversed. And so now our role in responsibility and in holiness is to agree with that reversal in Christ by the way that we live. By taking that responsibility and living holy lives and acting in humility and in justice before our God, what we are saying is, I am with my life am I am agreeing with the work of Christ that has begun to reverse the fall. And I'm also looking forward to every single day when he comes again and the reversal back to a created order and even to higher degrees come to its completion. But we must acknowledge this intrinsic fallenness. Number two, we must confess our gospel deviancy. We must confess our gospel deviancy. In chapter one, Paul had to confront leaders who were swerving and wandering away from Christ. And once you wander away from Christ into entertaining, vain discussions, who then is your example? Whom then do we set forth before men and women and children? The example of what it means to be godly. Once you remove Christ from the equation, guess what? You become the measure. And it's a poor replacement. When we wander away from Christ, either in our homes or in the church, swerving from grace and laying hold of the law, you better do it right, and if you fail... Comes the hammer of judgment. We parent and we talk, and oftentimes we preach that way. And we deviate from grace. We deviate from the love of God and applying that in our households and in our churches. And that's what these teachers were doing got away from Christ, focusing on the law and how we should try to keep it. It's a return to chains. Now, Christ is the gospel for both men and women. See how he loved and valued both men and women. And when churches become removed from Christ, is it any wonder that we cease to treat our sisters in a Christ-like manner? Number three, we must confess our prayerlessness. You see that in chapter two? the Apostle Paul giving that admonition, brothers, you're to be prayers. You're to be people who pray. Humility, wisdom, seeking God's will. If men and especially the eldership are unwilling to be humble before God, if they're unwilling to humble themselves before God, why would they humble themselves anywhere else? Prayer is the active humbling of oneself before God for communion, wisdom, and empowerment. And a prayerless church and a prayerless man will only continue in his intrinsic fallenness. Brothers number four, we must confess our godlessness. One of the reasons that our sisters and others in the church, children, People of all ages, both men and women, is frankly just unholy hands. What happens when men cease to be holy, godlike in their passions and their conduct and in their speech? Division happens, confusion happens. Number five, we must confess our anger. We must confess our anger. Angry hearts, angry words, hostile, gruff demeanor, hard speech as husbands, as fathers. We bring that then into the church. Brothers, does your anger shut down your wife? You should ask her Am I an angry man? And then if she says yes, we'll probably prove out by your response that you are in fact an angry man. Does your anger shut down your wife? Does it shut down your children and men coming in angry? Why? There is an innate anger because I hate my job. I am fearful and I don't want anybody to know it. And I'm angry at God. I'm angry at life. I'm angry that my wife doesn't treat me as I should and as I deserve and it's her fault and it's his fault and it's the church's fault. You are just living out that intrinsic fallenness. And it shuts down a culture of learning and discipleship. And then we legitimize patriarchy by careless treatment of the word Women, sit down, shut up, go home, have kids. Patriarchy. It's a domineering and diminishing in posture. And frankly, there was a strong cultural band of that that ran through evangelicalism, particularly from the 1940s to the 1980s. Now, we have swapped that patriarchy with spineless Christian leaders. So there's always like this pendulum effect. But we must confess brothers that in our anger and our dissatisfaction and our gruffness we don't treat our sisters well. Number six we must confess our argumentativeness. Do you see that in the text? All of these things by the way are coming right from the passage here. Without quarreling, we must confess our argumentatives, this innate desire to be right. Whether or not we actually are right, we just want to be right. We want to be right in how to apply female roles within the church. And we want to be right on exactly how we understand it should be. But you need to understand, brothers that there is sometimes in the Christian life, oftentimes in the Christian life, a messy middle. There's times where the word of God says, black and white, this is what you should do. There's no question, do it or not, right or wrong. There are many decisions where we have to go to the Lord. He has orchestrated and built our existence. So, that for many things in life, we have to go to the Lord in prayer, in holiness, confessing, and say, God, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom for how to honor our sisters in Christ. And also recognize the different roles that she has that I don't have and the ones that I have that I'm supposed to have that she doesn't have and how we are to work together within the context of esteeming the name of Christ. And by the way, sisters, one of the questions that I brought up last week is, you know, why does Paul single out women? My argument would be see how much emphasis is put on male leadership and expectation before we ever get to 1 Timothy 2.11. And that's a reminder to you, my brothers, of the responsibility that you have. And lastly, number seven, we must confess our fearful leadership. We must confess our fearful leadership. Paul writes several times, to Timothy, I entrust you, verse two. In chapter two, verse one, Timothy, I urge you, I'm giving you entrustment. I'm giving you urging. You are to walk this out. You are to walk in holiness and righteousness. You should be bold. You're to be, have strong convictions. But also be humble. But if 20 or 30 years ago, patriarchy was the dominating traits in some aspects of the church, the pendulum has swung to where in fear for leadership, we have jettisoned Brothers, often much conviction. And we've confused humility with what it is in reality, a weak will or a weak understanding of Scripture. And confusing women and men about how we're to utilize and to represent our created roles. As the father in the family, as the, the eldership in the family of God Brothers, we are to do justice, love kindness, to walk humbly and thereby with confession before the Lord create an atmosphere where both men and women and people from every tribe, tongue and nation can come and grow and learn and flourish in Christ. and truly be a church that lives out the living Christ in a way that honors our God. But brothers, before we talk to our sisters, the first onus is on you. It's on me. To be men that represent our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Sisters, I pray that you will pray for us men. We need it greatly to have wisdom, to be men of God, men of discernment. And brothers, would you pray and ask for humility but also bold conviction and if one of these things I've talked about resonates with you, that you would have the courage right now before the Lord to confess it to the Lord and then maybe to your wife or those who've been affected by it. Let's just stop for a moment in quiet prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace in the Son, Jesus Christ, that even as we have so many frailties, of which I confess so many of these in this list, I pray that you would help us to be men of godliness, of strength, but also of humility. And these are not mutually exclusive. Quick to confess with spirits broken, quick to mourn over sin, meek in demeanor and hungry for righteousness. Help us, O God, as men to truly be pure and merciful and peacemakers. And I pray for my sisters who may have been hurt or even throughout the culture, sometimes of evangelicalism, just confusion. And I pray that you would help us as a church to be passionate, a passion born out of deep conviction, to behold the word of God in its glory, to see the fullness of Christ, to celebrate the cross that only in Christ Jesus are we reconciled and made whole. And if there is someone here who has not put their faith and trust in Christ, doesn't matter. King, pauper, language, skin color, background, male or female, what their week has been like or what they have done, in Christ there is forgiveness. And may today, may they cry out and say, God, here I am a sinner, forgive me. I pray that you would help us as a church to grow by your word and to love the glory of the name of Christ and delight there in it. And in Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen.